The following sermon is a recording from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. For more audio and information, please visit HolyCrossTucson.com. Well, good to hear those friendly welcomes, and I hope that that fellowship will continue um, into the week with one another. Glad that you're here. We continue in our worship. If you're new with us, we've been studying the Apostles' Creed and kind of taking it line by line and working through this. The Apostles' Creed is, is a confession of the Christian faith. And, uh, and there's something worth noting and worth mentioning about uh, the creed itself. Creeds are easy to recite. Creeds are easy to memorize. Uh, confessing truths are also fairly easy. But then there's something else that isn't so easy in what we're trying to accomplish with this. That is conviction. I mean, conviction is quite a different thing than just a creed or a confession. A conviction flows from the heart and is confessed with the mouth. We're interested not merely in us reciting a creed or memorizing a confession or even giving affirmation to what it says. We are interested in allowing these confessions, these foundational truths of the Christian faith to dig deep into our hearts, to really anchor into our hearts in such a way that it brings rest and overflows into a life that is lived uh, in praise and, and faithful praise to God and love for God and love for others. And so the creed is a confession that has many confessions within the confession. Uh, and that's what we've been doing. Each line is itself a confession as we recited it today. Maybe you saw that, that each line can kind of be a separate uh, confession. And so that brings us today to our next line in the Apostles' Creed that we'll work through. And that is, a, that is this, the line that says, I believe in Jesus Christ who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. And it felt like just a handful of weeks ago, uh, at the close of our Christmas Advent season, when I admitted to you all, after five weeks of preaching on the Christmas theme, I had no sermons left in me on this theme. But it turns out I've got one more. Uh, one more today. And the Bible tells us that Jesus came into the world in extraordinary fashion, and it tells us that Jesus left the world in extraordinary fashion. Came into the world, uh, conceived by the Holy Spirit through the vir virgin birth, he he left the world in extraordinary fashion through the resurrection and triumph over death and his ascension into heaven. And both of these claims have been ridiculed by most outside the church and even many within the church as merely fairy tales and make-believe stories. To some, the, the virgin birth uh, seems like this ancient way of thinking. It's, it's something that people thought a long time ago who did not have the luxury of, of, of well-advanced science and understanding. It's something that dumb people believe when a long time ago when it was much easier to believe in impossible things. But today we live in a different world. We don't need to believe in a, impossible things. We're smarter. And the question is for us today, does it really matter? And why does it matter? Would it make a difference in your life if, if uh, Jesus was not born to a virgin? I mean, what if some ancient le letter uh, was unearthed and, and it dated around the time of Jesus' birth and the letter reveals this, this scandalous uh, love affair between a woman named Mary, written to her lover, we'll call him Larry, and pleading pleading with one another that the news of the affair not be made known to her fiancé, Joseph. Would it make a difference? 
if that existed. In fact, this is the content of a very popular book written within the church of a popular Christian pastor that says it shouldn't make a difference if that letter were found one day. Because to be a Christian is to love like Jesus, to follow his example. And if he were not born of a virgin, it shouldn't matter. But the Bible draws a very different conclusion, that it does make a difference, that it is absolutely vital to the Christian faith and to our salvation and to how we live our lives. And this is where the creed takes us next. The creed shifts from just a general expression of faith in Christ to a few points of his life and work and ministry that are of utmost importance to our salvation and the way we live. And our scripture reading today, as we keep in mind this particular theme and confession in the creed that we walk through, is found in John chapter 1. And you can go with me as we read this for this morning. John chapter 1, I'll start in verse 1. It aims to explain for us how vitally important and necessary the incarnation is. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. This is God's word. It's easy to make a common mistake uh, when thinking about Jesus being born. And that mistake is this. It's picturing most prominently in our mind that a baby was born of Mary. And, And we think about the incarnation, we think about the birth, and we think about God becoming a baby. When really the overarching theme of the New Testament when speaking of this event is not that God became a baby, but that God became a man, that God became rather human, that God became human. The overarching concern of the creed and the Bible is not the birth of a baby, but rather it's the incarnation of God. It is God taking on flesh. The focus of the Bible when it comes to the story of Christmas is God taking flesh. That's what incarnation means. It means in the flesh. It's incarnate asada. You know what I'm talking about? It's in, in the meat. You'll never forget it. In the meat. It is God who is spirit taking on 
flesh. And this has profound importance to the Christian faith. Consider if you found a, a bicycle chain and walking on the sidewalk one day and there on the ground was a bicycle chain. But keep in mind, you've never even seen a bicycle. You've never even heard of a bicycle. And you're given a hundred guesses for what is the purpose of this chain and what does it mean for your life. And you would probably, even with a hundred guesses, not figure out what it was for. And it can be that way when we just look at the virgin birth. We look at the virgin birth, and without the context of, of how it fits into the incarnation of God, it means very little. So, so, so Mary was a virgin, and she had a baby. Uh, what significance is that for my life? What does it mean, and why does it matter? And we would probably be just as confused as looking at this chain and saying, where does it go? I don't know what to make of it. And what, is the, what does it matter if I have it? But looking at the virgin birth in the context of God becoming human means everything. What I want to do today is truly see how the incarnation, follow me here, is pregnant with meaning, pun intended. It is pregnant with meaning. It is, it is of greatest and utmost importance to what it means to be a Christian, to see why it matters to us. And so first I want to see clearly that the incarnation is a few things. But first, the incarnation is essential. It is essential. We've said this. It's of utmost importance. Most obvious in this passage is this. If we want to know God, here is the essential nature of the incarnation that John gives to us. If you want to know God, if you want to know him truly, not just things about God, but if you really want to know him, you need to know Jesus. And the opposite is true. The opposite is true. If we don't know Jesus then we don't know God truly. We don't know him. We can know certain things about him, his nature, his power revealed in creation. But if we want to know God's true nature and deep and intimate things about him, we cannot do that without Jesus. Because Jesus has made God known. He has made himself known to us. It's absolutely essential to know Jesus if we want to have a real relationship with God. The passage begins and ends in a similar way. It is showing us that there are intimate and true things about God, about who he is and his character that have previously been hidden from our understanding. The word in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God and later tells us that the word is truly God and this word was at the Father's side and has now, been, has now made known to us the Father God, who's previously never been seen, but now he's been made known to us. And it doesn't mean that we can't know anything about God without Jesus. We can know quite a bit, but we cannot know him truly. It's the difference of saying, I, I, I know things about a person. Think of maybe someone you know that you have never met, but you know a lot about, a, a, your famous athlete that you like, a famous uh, movie star or a singer and maybe even you know their birthday, and you know their hobbies, and you know where they live, you know who they're married to, you know all these things. And it's almost as if this is your friend, you know? It's like, oh, so, so when, when have you met this person? Oh, I haven't met this person. So there's, there's, there's one thing to know facts about a person, and yet another thing to actually know that person personally. And the difference is, is that word, that person telling us, that word of God, the most intimate and relational things about God, previously unknown, made known to us, through Jesus. And without the incarnation, without God becoming a man, we would not know those things about him. The great hope of the world is that God has not left us alone. He's not left us to fend for ourselves. 
This is the great story of God and his rescue for his people, that he has come to us, he has pursued us, he has initiated with us. And that we would hope to know, all that we would hope to know about God is summed up in the the most startling experience that the world has ever known, that God became a man. And so it is essential for us, if we want to know God, we need to know him as Jesus. We need to know Jesus and know who he is and why he has come to be a man. Of course, that's not all of why it is essential. It's essential, of course, because the Bible tells us that Mary was a virgin. It tells us that God became a man. But Jesus had to be both God, truly divine, and both man, truly human, in order to secure for us our salvation. Consider this first. If Jesus was born of Mary and Larry, then, we, then, then, then he would have inherited the guilt of his father. He would have inherited the guilt of, of Adam. The, 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 the guilt and sin of Adam and his rebellion and the curse that happened in the garden that is handed down from generation to generation would have been given to Jesus' father if he had been born of an earthly father. And therefore, Jesus would be in just as bad and dire of a situation as you and I are in. Bearing the curse of sin, Jesus would need for himself a savior, someone to come who did not have the guilt of Adam. And so... Jesus could not have been born of Mary and an earthly father. Second, if Jesus had not been conceived by the Holy Spirit, then he would not be perfectly righteous. He would not be pure. He would not be holy. He would not be perfect. And the whole premise of our salvation as Christians is that while while still sinful, God gives to us his righteousness through the atonement of Jesus Christ through the instrument of our faith, believing that in his righteousness, God's righteousness, Jesus' righteousness, is imputed to the sinner. And so God takes our sin and he gives us his righteousness. But if Jesus were not God, then he would have no righteousness to give to us. And we would be dead in sin and we would remain in our sin. And so, Jesus, it is essential, it is absolutely essential that Jesus were both human and God, that he was the incarnation of God, that he was the eternal son of God, that he was born of a virgin. And so it is essential for us. Let's move on from that. But just because it's essential doesn't mean it's comfortable and doesn't mean that it is easy. The incarnation is also a a confrontation. It is God coming into our life. It is God imposing his presence in our daily life and into our life itself. While discussing this passage with, with James this week, I, we, I asked him, tell me what you think about this passage. What strikes you in this passage? What do you notice? And I love what he said. It's, it's on its face. It's a, it's a general observation, but it has profound meaning. He says, I love how John uses the word light so many times. He repeats himself almost obnoxiously. He says it seven times in very short passage. And now you're probably noticing it. Wow, why does he say that? so much. It's a notable observation. John is discussing the light that has come into the world. While discussing the light that has come into the world, he also introduces the darkness. And so follow along with John. He says, light, 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 light. And you're thinking, wow, God is light and he's come into the world. And then he introduces darkness. And so we have in our mind these two opposing natures, opposing nature of light and opposing nature of darkness. John brings our attention to the opposing nature between the two things. They are opposites. 
To have one is to not have the other. To be in one is not to be in the other. To be in the dark is to be isolated, cut off from understanding, wicked and evil. It is to be in the midst of sin. But to be in the light is to be given the light, the, the life of God. It is to be given understanding of who God is. Why does John do that? By doing this, by getting into our minds and understanding the vast opposite nature of light and dark, now John introduces us Jesus and understanding what Jesus accomplishes for us. He wants us to know the opposite nature of being life with God and life without God. And there is no middle ground. It really and truly is a black and white matter. It is a light and dark matter. We either believe in Christ and become children of God, not by our own doing, but by the grace of God, or we remain in darkness, cut off from relationship with God. So just as opposite as light and dark is, John wants to say, so is the opposite nature of life with God. You either have him or you don't. There is no middle ground. We either have a relationship or we don't. And Jesus has come to give us that relationship with God. And if we do not have Christ, we do not have God. One of the snapshots, the earliest snapshots of Christ and who he would be like and what he would do in the world is that he would be a light that pierces the darkness. And while this is good, it's also a confrontation. It's an imposition into our life because the presence of life of light exposes the darkness and it makes us uncomfortable. A quote from Tim Keller says this, the incarnation, like God himself, is both more wondrous and more threatening than we imagine. It is both more wonderful and more amazing, and, but at the same time more dangerous and terrifying. Why is that? Because the incarnation is God moving into our space. It is God coming into our life. It is God coming into our world. And we are meant to see the incarnation truly as God moving in. He's moving into our life. He is pitching a tent in our hearts, into our backyard. He says, I'm here and I'm here to stay. And that makes us feel uncomfortable. There is no circumstance where we host a guest in our house, even just for one night, that it doesn't dramatically alter our life in some significant way. And in this isn't a bad thing. We have, we have literally painted rooms in our house because of a guest coming over. We're having a friend come over to dinner. Okay, what bathroom do I need to paint? You know, or I've, I've literally been on my hands and knees in the backyard pulling weeds for hours because of that one small chance that someone will say, oh, so what's your backyard look like? Well, come and see. It's just perfectly manicured. You know, don't look under the bed or in the closets. You know, we get, we get ready, right? It's probably the same for you. You have house guests over. You have someone, what if someone spends the night? You wash your sheets. You wash your pillowcases. I hope so. And you, you know... <laughs> And, and, and you get ready. God, the incarnation is God moving in. And that, is a, that must leave us changed. Jesus tells us this, the true light came into his own, came to his own, but his own rejected him. Many did not receive him. Why not? Why, did not, why didn't, if the, if the light coming into the world is so great, if the incarnation is so wonderful, then why didn't people get excited about receiving him. I'm glad you asked. Because John actually answers this in John chapter 3. He says this for one reason. Because the people love the darkness more than they love the light. The light is, is a confrontation. It is an imposition in our life. 
It exposes the darkness, and we don't like that. They would rather ignore their mess than have someone come in and expose the need for their mess to be cleaned up. And so while loving the darkness, embracing the darkness, we embrace the lie that we can that we are okay without God, that we don't need relationship with God. We don't need him to come into our life and expose the darkness. We're fine without it. And so in doing so, we love the darkness more than the light, and we say, no thanks, I don't need it. But there are those who are able to look at their mess, recognize that they are sinners, and see the light that has come to, to give them life. To those, God became the right to be called children of God. To say, hey, friends are coming over for dinner. Let's just kind of clean the house up, but put things in closets and underneath the bed where no one can see. This doesn't work when God moves in. It doesn't work when God moves in. We cannot hide the darkness. We cannot hide the wickedness. We cannot hide the mess. The incarnation is such a confrontation of our self-sufficiency, our self-confidence, our self-protection, our self-will, our self-importance. There is no circumstance where God comes into, where, he, where God intends to come into our life to leave us where we are. There is no circumstance that God shows up and intends to leave us as we are. He, he intends to move in, to change us. It's a confrontation. The incarnation forces our hand, it forces our heart to decide who is this Jesus who has been born of this woman? We cannot go halfway. It is impossible to genuinely grasp the incarnation and remain hopeful in our own goodness as a means to our salvation. It is impossible on the one hand to stand in genuine admiration of God who became a man and at the same time say that we have within ourselves all that we need to know God and to be accepted by God on our own work. Because those two things are light and dark, black and white, in opposition to one another. The incarnation exposes and confronts a salvation that can be gained on our own work. It confronts that way of thinking. And it says if God is saying the end of your thinking starts now, of the end of your thinking that you can save yourself starts now. To say that Jesus is light that comes into darkness is to say that Jesus is the answer, that he is the solution to all that is darkness. The darkness that manifests itself in shame and guilt and lack of understanding and ignorance, poverty and abuse. Whatever it is, he has the truth and he means that we do not have within ourselves what we need to solve the problems in our heart and to solve the problems in the world. The Bible speaks about darkness that pervades every area of society, every area of self, so much so that no measure of human ingenuity or intelligence or legislature can fix the problems that disease our soul and our world. God has come to make his dwelling among us. That is the incarnation, the dwelling with God. And it is true that as the, Jew, as the Jewish people would read this, uh, the dwelling with God was not a new idea. They had been called to dwell with God. They had been given uh, provisions uh, from God in order to dwell with him. But nonetheless, I think this passage would have been shocking news to their ears. Whenever God's people had to dwell with God, they had to enter into some kind of covering. 
Moses wanted to see God and know God, so God told him, I need to hide you in the, in the cleft of a rock on the side of a mountain, and you can just see my glory pass by. And so he was covered in order to protect himself. Elijah wanted to be with God, and so God sent him into a cave where he could commune with God. Moses was instructed to build a tabernacle while the Israelites wandered through the desert. And he was instructed to to build a tabernacle. As he entered into the tabernacle, it was there that he would have communion with God and receive word from God to give to the people. The temple was built in the 6th century before Christ. It is where God dwelled. And here is the point. Whenever a person desired to have communion with God and relationship with God, they had to go into some kind of covering to dwell with God. But now in the incarnation, it is God entering into our covering in order to dwell with us. It is God becoming human and taking on flesh. And that would have been most shocking for all of the people. They would have said, okay, where do I need to enter into to be with God? And John says, no, God is entering into you to be with you. And this would have flipped things upside down. It would have been most shocking to their ears. God is making his dwelling place with you. The incarnation is essential. Without the incarnation, we do not have communion with God. We do not have a dwelling with God. But it's not only just an essential thing or a confrontation as the light exposes the darkness and God's need to come in and to expose the darkness, but it's one final thing. The incarnation is it's for us. It's good news for us. How can the blessing of the incarnation, the good news that God has come, how can that be for us and actually a good thing and not just a a terrifying thing? Well, John tells us in verse 9, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. The language here, and maybe you missed it, is clearly gift language. We receive it as a gift of grace. Do you see that in, all, in those verses, what pops out to me is a language of gift-giving. He came, they did not receive, but to those who did receive, he gave. It is this language of giving, of this, the, of this blessing of the incarnation. We receive it as a gift of grace. Let me ask you this. What, does, what do you think it takes for a person to become a Christian? Is it a little push in the right direction? Is it a right information presented at the right time? It is a good and solid upbringing. It is understanding and memorizing certain creeds, like the Apostles' Creed. Are there a certain type of person that makes that person suitable to become a Christian? Think of it like this. Has there ever been a person, maybe an old college friend or an old high school friend, childhood friend maybe, that later in life, you've had, you've had lost contact over the years, but later in life, maybe through uh, Facebook or some other means, you heard that this person has become a Christian. And there are a couple of things that maybe have come to your mind. One thing might come to your mind and say, there's no way that person was such a jerk, <laughs> right? Or another thing might come to mind that makes perfect sense. That person was so kind, so nice, 
you know what, now that you say it, it makes perfect sense that that person became a Christian. If you have thought that, do you realize that there might be something a little bit in you that believes that God loves us because of who we are and because we are good? That there is a certain type of person that is a Christian type. There is no Christian type. There is no Christian type. If you think things like that, you may have a subtle sense that there's a Christian type, that we can deserve God's love, and that possibly we can come through the course of our life and obedience, that we can come to deserve it more. That if there is a Christian type, that maybe God sees something in you, even to the slightest degree, that makes him glad that he loved you and saved you because you are somehow useful. And that if you keep it up and you keep working at that, that God could even love you more, that there will be something more of his blessing that he could give to you because you are just the type of person to be a Christian. Let me put it this way. If you are not completely stunned that God became a man to save you, then some small part of your thinking might think that it makes sense that God loves you because of the good that you've done. John says the law was given through Moses, but the grace and truth has come through Jesus Christ. The law is a confrontation. A law, the law is a way for God to make the playing field completely even. He says you have two options. Obey the law perfectly. And if you have disobeyed it once, then, then you have disobeyed it all. And are as guilty as everyone who has disobeyed it. The law is a confrontation. You see, the law is unmerciful. The law is just. The law is resolute. The law is, is wavering. There is no work around the law. And you know this because when those red and blue lights are flashing in your rearview mirror, you don't think that it's good news. You don't think, did I leave something at a restaurant and this kind cop is coming to bring it to me as a first priority? No. And I'm not a man of great illegality, but still, when I see those lights, I start rehearsing everything I've said and done that day. Could it possibly, can he possibly know what I did earlier? Can he possibly know what I thought? You ever think those things? And you're like, what am I doing? I didn't do anything wrong. I'm fine. But you're wondering, why is he here? Why is she here? The law is unmerciful. The law is unwavering. The law has one purpose, and it is to administer justice according to our behavior. That's the one purpose of the law. Jesus comes to satisfy that law that we have broken in, in every way and every day and to reveal to us the truth of our only rescue from God's punishment as lawbreakers. The truth of our only rescue is the gift of grace received in faith in Jesus' work for us, his birth, his perfect life, his um, atoning death and his victorious resurrection. And John says, from him we have received grace upon grace. What does this mean? John is telling us it is from start to finish. It is from first to last. Everything that we have from God we owe to the grace of God, not our obedience to his law. Your salvation will never be because you are finally good enough. Your salvation will never be because you are the Christian type of person that God loves to love. 
It will always be because of his sheer grace from start to finish. Let me press this in a little bit more. Do you ever consciously or, or unconsciously think, God would love me more if I blank? God would love me more if I stopped blank. God would love me more if I started blank. If you have things that you would put in the blank, it's likely that you are stuck in an exhausting struggle that is making you incredibly spiritually tired to be loved by God and finally accepted by Him. Nothing, nothing you can put in that blank would make you more loved by God. God does not love you because you manage to impress people. God does not love you because you manage to impress Him. God does not love you because you're smart. God does not love you because you follow the rules. God does not love you because people think that you're great. God does not love you because you have been faithful to the blessings that he has entrusted in you. He doesn't love you for those reasons or any other reasons you can think of. Why does God love you? He loves you because you are his. That's it. He loves you because you are his. You belong to him. Can you accept that? Can, you, can that be enough for you? Can it be enough for you? Some of you may be thinking, but I don't deserve that kind of love. And I will not disagree with you. I know you too well. And you know me. You're right. If we say, but I don't deserve that. That just makes me uncomfortable. I don't want that kind of love. I don't deserve that kind of love. You're right. We don't deserve that kind of love. We don't deserve it. And yet we have been given it. Instead of trying to to sort of try to be that kind of person who deserves that kind of love, because we do that. We say, I know that God loves me by his grace, but I just want to be the kind of person who would deserve the kind of love that God has given so graciously. That's a weird kind of backdoor kind of way of saying, I still want to earn it. Instead of being that kind of person who, wants, who tries to sort of be the kind of person who would be the person God could love because of your good works, Where am I going? I don't know. Where was that? You following me? Be this kind of person instead. Be the person who rejoices that this kind of love has been given to you, even though you haven't deserved it. Instead of spending your exhaustive and spiritual and mental energy in trying to be the kind of person who could deserve God's love, be the kind of person who rejoices that this love has been given to you, even though you didn't deserve it. That's a great way to spend your life great way to spend your time. Jesus did not love you so much that he was willing to risk his life for you. Jesus loved you so much that he actually embraced death. He didn't just risk death. He embraced it. He loved you so much that he embraced it for you. Be the person who sees the light and acknowledges the darkness in your heart. This means admitting you're a sinner, admitting that you've loved the darkness more than light in many ways, Be the person who receives this grace and rests in this grace. Now maybe you're thinking, what on earth does this have to do with the Virgin Mary? Everything. Everything. 
There has never been an event in history that makes us swallow our pride more than the event that God became a man. Because we are so lost and so unable to save ourselves that nothing less than God himself coming to be a man could save us. There's nothing, not a single event that makes us swallow our pride more than we look at the incarnation and we see the life of Jesus and why he was born to go to the cross, to die for us, to take up, embrace death, to take our sin, to raise from the grave in triumph over death and sin itself, and then to give us as a free gift the righteousness of God. This means that you and me or we, we are not the kind of people that can pull ourselves together and live a good and moral life. It means that if we lose the virgin birth, then we lose the incarnation. And if we lose the incarnation, we lose our hope. If we don't have the incarnation, we lose our salvation. And we truly are on our own. But that's not the case. When we see the incarnation, it is there we truly see how far God was willing to go to show us that he loves us and to save us all the way, all the way down, all the way humiliated, all the way dead, all the way man, all the way human, all the way God, all the way for us. The incarnation is for you. Let's pray.